I am proud to announce that Food Pharmacy, one of the biggest health brands in Sweden, is now launching its highly acclaimed blog as well as books and podcasts in English. Food Pharmacy is eager to take its award-winning Scandinavian concept and share it with the rest of the world and to contribute to the fight against the global burden of lifestyle-related diseases. In 2014, Lina Nertby and Mia Klasa started Food Pharmacy, embarking on a long, sometimes meandering, often magical journey towards their goal of improving public health. Along the way, they've spoken with a variety of experts and professionals in various fields related to health and lifestyle. In this podcast series, you'll meet a few of them. Be a part of the journey. This is The Food Pharmacy Show. Welcome to the Food Pharmacy Show. Today, Lina, we are going to talk about the third pillar of health, along with diet and exercise. Yes, and what are we then talking about? Sleep, of course. Actually, I didn't know that there is so much we can do in order to improve our sleep. I remember when I was in the middle of my divorce, I slept extremely badly. However, even though it affected my life so much in every single aspect, it actually never crossed my mind that I could get help to improve my sleep. Me neither, actually. But my God, when we started to dig into sleep problems, a whole new world opened up for us. There are so many ways to get help if you have poor sleeping patterns. When I mentioned my bad sleep to our expert in functional medicine, he immediately started to track and analyze my sleeping patterns. And the good thing is that it got you to start tracking your sleep as well, right? Yes, it did. And I'm so grateful for that. I actually never realized that I had problems with my sleep. But when I started to track the sleep, I realized that this analysis wasn't only for the people who experiences bad sleep. I learned that there were many things I could do in order to optimize and improve my sleep, like the amount of deep sleep, for example. And correct me if I'm wrong, but with very small adjustments, you actually improved your deep sleep, didn't you? Yes, I did. Because that was the case even for me. Okay, I increased the number of hours I slept, but more importantly, I could follow how I improved the quality of sleep. So if any of you who are listening today have a bad sleep, please make sure to do something about it. Yes, please do something about it because the quality of our sleep affects almost everything in our lives. Not only our own health, but also how we perform at work or in school. And it also makes us better friends, partners and parents. True, Lina, true. I just need to add something though. Even if you don't experience that you have a poor sleep, You might, if you dig into this lifestyle area, discover that you have so much to gain when optimizing your sleep, exactly the way I did. In today's podcast, we meet Michael Bruce, PhD, a clinical psychologist who is also known as the sleep doctor. 
He is one of only 168 psychologists in the world to have passed the Sleep Medical Specialty Board without going to medical school. The sleep doctor is also a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And Dr. Bruce has also been named the top sleep specialist in California by Reader's Digest and one of the 10 most influential people in sleep. He has written best-selling books and appeared in many TV shows. Yes, like Oprah and the Dr. Oz show, on which he has actually appeared 40 times. Oh my god. Yes, but not only on shows. He has also appeared on CNN as an example. We could go on a bit more, but just let's say he is very popular. He lectures all over the world at hospitals, medical centers, financial organizations, and now he's here at the Food Pharmacy Show. If you ask me, not a minute too late. Welcome to the Food Pharmacy Show, Dr. Bruce. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we are so honored to have you here. You are well known in the States as the sleep doctor, but for the ones who haven't heard of you, maybe you would uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you actually became the sleep doctor. I'd be happy to. Thank you for asking. So um, I have a PhD in clinical psychology. So I am a clinical psychologist, but I am medically board certified in clinical sleep disorders. Here in the United States, um, we have a board specialty. So in medicine, you can specialize into certain different areas. So some people specialize in general practice. Some people might be a surgeon. Some people might be a cardiologist. You can actually specialize in sleep and sleep medicine. And so um, even though I'm not a medical doctor, I was allowed to take the medical doctor test and I passed without going to medical school. And I've been an actively practicing sleep specialist for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And I specialize in teaching people how to find new ways to sleep better during difficult times. Mm, so interesting. So how do you sleep yourself? I must ask you. Of course, everybody always does. You know, I'm a pretty good sleeper. Um, yeah. People always wonder, did you go into this because you had a sleep problem or somebody yeah. you care about, family member, wife, somebody like that have a sleep problem? Not really. Um, it was just interesting to me. Uh, you know, one of the three big denominators for all of all people, they have to breathe air, they have to drink water and they have to sleep. Hmm. And those are the three big things that everybody has to do. So I thought I would become an expert in one of those three. Hmm. <laughs> Good choice. So how many hours of sleep do we need every night? So this is an interesting question and one that um, a lot of people um, have a lot of questions about. We used to think it was eight hours and eight hours only. Um, that is no longer the case. I myself, I go to bed around midnight and I wake up around 6.15 every morning. So hmm. I, as the sleep doctor, only sleep six hours and 15 minutes every night. But my wife she sleeps longer. She goes to bed at around 10.30 and she'll wake up around 8. So she gets significantly more sleep than me because that's what she needs. So everybody's internal personal sleep need 
turns out to be different. And so people need to kind of start to figure that out. Most people have an idea as to how, uh, how many hours of sleep that they need. Hmm. I'm more like your wife. I've actually always <laughs> been sleeping quite a lot. And even though I go to bed early, I still mm -hmm. am tired in the morning. <laughs> so that is a sleep quality issue. So there's quantity, right? Which is how many hours you sleep. But what is the quality of the sleep that you're getting turns out to be incredibly important. And so when somebody like you comes to me and says, hey, Dr. Bruce, I need eight, nine, 10 hours of sleep, I start to wonder, could they have a sleep disorder? Could they have undiagnosed sleep apnea? Could they have narcolepsy? Could they have depression? There's a lot of different things why somebody would need that much sleep. But generally speaking, if you need more than uh, nine hours of sleep, you may want to talk with your doctor and kind of see why. Mm. Okay. Well, I, I need eight, eight and a half at least. So Nothing wrong uh, with that. I will call the doctor if, if I need nine. Ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so is it true then that people have different genetic preferences for sleep? It is true. As a matter of fact, my third book, um, which is called The Power of When, W-H-E-N, we have um, helped people discover something called your chronotype. So it turns out that inside your body, your genetics determines if you're an early bird, people who like to wake up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning. If you're a night owl, people who like to wake up at eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning, somebody in between or somebody with sleep difficulties. That actually turns out to be genetic. And so I can look at your 23andMe or your Ancestry.com data or one of those services, and I can tell you exactly what it is. But to be honest, most people have a good idea as to what they are. So if I turn to somebody and I said, hey, has anybody ever called you an early bird or a night owl? People know exactly what that yeah. means. And, and those are the four different genetic um, sleep schedules that many people have. What's really interesting is once we discover what your sleep schedule is, and then you follow it, your sleep dramatically improves and you need less of it, which is kind of amazing. Oh, because the quality improves. Exactly. Oh, great. So sleep is told to be one of the most important parts of a healthy lifestyle. And uh, why is it so important to get enough sleep or enough good quality of sleep? So first of all, I'm glad you said good quality of sleep. So you're, you're, you're making sense it, it, right on I'm board. Learning. <laughs> I know you're doing great. You're doing great. Um, and so here's what we know is we don't honestly 100% know why we sleep, but we do know that if we do not sleep or we don't get good quality sleep, a lot of really terrible things happen. So number one, we gain weight. Um, our metabolism slows down, our appetite increases, and all we want to do is eat. That's not good. Um, the more sleep deprived we are, the less motivated we are for exercise. So what ends up happening is we don't exercise and we lie around and we kind of get sedentary and things like that. Our food choices change. The more sleep deprived we are, the more we crave high sugar, high fat foods, which again, not good for, for the body, right? Um, and then we also know that it affects us emotionally. I mean, let's be honest. If you, don't, if you haven't had a good night's sleep, how nice are you to be around? Right. Mm, uh, not you know, at all. <laughs> my, right. Exactly. Exactly. My daughter will tell me if I'm being grumpy or not, um, because if I haven't gotten enough sleep, she's very well aware. Um, also our thinking slows down quite a bit. 
Um, our ability to cognate, our ability to think, make decisions, our ability to remember is directly affected by our sleep. So all of these areas um, affect your, your, your entire human existence. I would argue that everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. Sleep affects every organ system and every disease state. Literally everything you do is affected mm. by sleep. So when saying that, do you have any figure of like the American population? How many percentage? Okay, so tell me, how many percentage have a bad night's sleep? sleep? Yeah. Yeah, 174 million people. Um, almost half the half almost half. half of the United States mm-hmm. is not getting a good night's sleep on a regular basis, at least three nights a week. That's the data. So lots and lots of people now. To be fair, right now, during periods of quarantine, stress is high, right? Mm-hmm. And so that throws off people's schedules and things like that. But even before that, that number was relevant. So many, many people are not getting the quality of the sleep that they need. Now, to be fair, there's a couple of different reasons why something like that might occur, right? So mm-hmm. one might be stress. Right. And so we're very difficult times right now. Lots of anxiety, lots of depression. That makes it difficult sometimes to fall asleep, to stay asleep, things like that. But that's not the only thing. It's not just what's going on in your head, but it's also what's going on in your surroundings. So in many cases, I'm talking with people about what to look at in your bedroom to help improve your sleep because we can train our mind, but we've also got to understand our environment as well. So you mean if we have less things that disturbs us in our bedroom, basically, that's better? Well, yes, um, but I'm talking about everything from your pillow to your mattress to your sheets to the light to the sound that's in the bedroom at night to the temperature. Is it warm? Is it cold? All of these things have an effect on your body's ability to fall asleep. So... What are the different stages of sleep? Mm-hmm. And could you tell us a bit about why we need each stage? Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> the different stages, this is where I, I, I have a lot of fun with this. So yeah. there's many different stages of sleep and there's two different categories. One category is called REM. That stands for rapid eye movement sleep. And then there's another category called non-REM. And that's broken down into four stages. Stages one, two, three, and four. You don't need to know all of the different stages, but stages three and four, we combine those and we call those deep sleep. Mm -hmm. This is where the physical restoration occurs. So this is the wake up and feel great sleep. This is where all of your physical repair goes on. So if you strain a muscle or you hurt something while you're working out or, or whatever, during this stage of sleep is when all of that kind of happens to fix what's going on in your body. So stages three and four sleep is very important. It has a tendency to be in the first half of the night, generally speaking. The other stage that's really important is REM, rapid eye movement sleep. What we know is this is your mental restoration. So this is where information goes from your short-term memory to your long-term memory. And that process of moving information is what we think dreaming is. So dreams are the movement of this information. And how does it happen? It actually happens electrically inside your head. 
So quite fascinating. Um, what happens is, is you get data in through your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your nose, and then your brain says, okay, I want to hold on to that because I need that piece of information to make a decision later on. So it figures out what it wants. Then electrically, it has to find the right filing cabinet inside your head, the right file drawer and the right file to put the information, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's a lot of information that's coming in all the time. So it doesn't always end up in the exact right file. This is where the bizarre nature of our dreams comes from. So as an example, if you are in a dream and you walk into your kitchen and your dog is eating spaghetti at the kitchen table with your second grade teacher and you don't know why that could be happening. Yeah, that, probably, that sounds like a typical dream. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But what's probably happening is you had Italian food for dinner your dog jumped on your bed and your second grader was talking about school, which reminded you of your second grade teacher. And you see how all those pieces of yeah, information yeah, yeah. kind of end up in this fantastic dream. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about REM sleep is that um, your body is completely paralyzed during REM sleep. You can't move a muscle. This is supposed to happen because it keeps you from acting out your dreams. Mm. Right acting out your dreams. So I have a patient where this doesn't work and he actually acts out his dreams. Wow. So he's like uh, kicking. Oh no, it's much worse than that. Yeah. So he's a hunter. Oh. Okay. And he goes out and he shoots deer. And when you shoot a deer and you don't kill it, you either have to slit its throat or crack its neck. It's the most humane thing to do. He woke up one night acting out his dream with his wife's head ready oh to crack God. her neck. Crazy, right? That sounds really Crazy. scary and dangerous. I would have it was really scary <laughs> and dangerous. So that's the, so the first question always is, did he kill her? Yeah. No, he did not kill her. Thankfully. No, because she left. <laughs> so that, that's the second question. Are they still married? Believe it or not, they are still married with one medication. We were able to uh, get him so that he was no longer acting out his dreams, which is one simple medication. Wow. But here's what was so fascinating is this is a, an early sign. When we see people who act out their dreams, it turns out it's an early sign for Parkinson's syndrome in 35% of the cases, right? So I use this as an example to teach people that sleep is a window into our health. Hmm. If you're not sleeping well, there's probably something going wrong in your body. And you need to start thinking about what could your sleep be telling you about your health. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Would you say then that deep sleep is that more vital for for like a sportsman than an average? Yes. Yeah. So okay. here, what we know is that some people can go without REM sleep for years, and mm -hmm. it, it has an effect on their memory, but they can still survive. But you cannot survive without the deep sleep because you need the physical restoration. In fact, some medications, antidepressant medications in particular, um, here in the States, we call them Prozac, Zoloft, mm. Effexor, Abilify, those kind of medications. All of those, when you take them, completely knock out REM sleep. 
And so there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are taking these medications who have very little REM sleep. So the question becomes, is that okay? The answer is yes, because we'd rather people have their depression solved or fixed with the medication than have them have active depression and not be able to sleep as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But let's say you you have problem with your REM sleep. Right. How could you fix it? What do you it? do about it? Yeah. Right. How do you, how do you fix it? Right. Yeah. So there's three different ways that you can start to fix REM sleep. That's my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I help people do. So one is if you go to sleep based on your genetic sleep schedule, what we were talking about before, the early bird or the night owl, what's interesting is as an example, if you're an early bird, but you go to bed late, you don't get the REM sleep. But if you're an early bird and you go to bed on time, you do. If you're a night owl and you go to bed early, you don't get the REM sleep. But if you go to bed on time for you as a night owl, you do. So step number one in improving that REM sleep is knowing what your chronotype is. That's Mm. early bird or night owl Mm. in the middle or insomnia, and then going to bed at that time. That will increase your REM sleep almost almost immediately. If you want to increase the physical restoration, the best way, believe it or not, exercise. So daily exercise. Now, you don't have to run a marathon. But you do need to do 20 to 30 minutes of some type of cardiovascular exercise to really get the body kind of going. Hmm. This actually sends signals to the brain that the brain needs to recover later on. One of the reasons that so many people right now during quarantine here in the United States are not doing well sleeping is because they're not moving. So what we we really need people to do is make sure that you move every day because sleep is recovery. And if you didn't do anything that your body needs to recover from, you're not going to get great sleep. Mm. So sleeping on a good, on a consistent schedule will increase your REM. Exercising daily will increase your stage three and four. And then there's two other things that people can do. One is lower or eliminate caffeine. Caffeine dramatically affects both the physical restoration and the mental restoration of sleep and alcohol. Alcohol affects the physical restoration. It doesn't affect the mental restoration nearly as much, um, but it does affect the physical restoration. So when you're looking at how do I improve my stage three, four deep sleep, or how do I improve my REM sleep, there are four things I would say you should do. Nah, five things you should do. One is figure out what your sleep schedule should be and stick to it every single day. Don't sleep in on the weekends. Don't stay up too late. Yeah, you should follow, follow the same schedule. That Every is what I tell day. my children. And they say, you're so mean. It's a weekend. <laughs> and I say, no, we should go to bed almost the same time. <laughs> yeah. What it, and so here's what's interesting is it's not the bedtime. It's the wake-up time that's the mm. most important, especially for kids. Mm. So if, you want, if your kids want to stay up until 1 o'clock in the morning and watch TV or play video games... I don't think I care, but they still have to get up at seven o'clock oh. like they do during the week. Okay. They will you. change their own behavior. Oh, <laughs> I can good. assure you. So I will start to implement this this weekend. Exactly. So step number one is stick to one schedule. Step mm. number two is to stop caffeine by 2 p.m. You can have your cup of coffee in the morning or your tea um, if you would like. Green tea is very healthy, good for you, that kind of thing. Um, But you need to watch out about two o'clock in the afternoon 
because caffeine has a half-life, stays in your body for six to eight hours. So if you stop at two, by 10, half of it is gone and it should be much easier to fall asleep. So if you can, stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Step number three is alcohol, right? And so it's okay to have a glass of alcohol with dinner, a glass of wine, a beer, something like that, maybe even two. But once you go past two, it has a big effect on your sleep. So it reduces that, that physical restoration. This is one of the reasons why when we wake up after drinking too much, we don't, our body doesn't feel too good no. because we didn't get that physical restoration sleep. Right? So is, if it, can, is, it, is that the reason when you've been drinking, I, I find it very common to wake up early in the morning, mm -hmm. even though you went yes. to bed late? Yeah. Yes. So there's two reasons why that happens. So one is the sugar inside the alcohol. Your body burns through it and then wakes up because it's looking for more sugar. That's number one. But number two, the effect of the alcohol wears off. So you know how alcohol makes you feel kind of you know, tipsy mm. um, and, and a little buzzed? That wears off over time. And then your body says, wait a second, what just happened? And it wakes you up in the middle of the night. So in order to avoid that, stop alcohol three hours before lights out. Mm, okay. So if you have a couple of drinks, it takes the average human body one hour to digest one alcoholic beverage. So if you have a drink, a glass of wine, have a glass of water, wait an hour, have a glass of wine, a glass of water, wait an hour, then go to bed. Make mm. sense? That way the alcohol, you still enjoy the alcohol, but it doesn't have an effect on your body. Mm. Step number four is exercise. Every day, if you can, just get out for a walk. Do something to move your body around. Mm. But you don't want to exercise too close to bedtime because your body gets too warm. Remember how we were talking about yeah. temperature is a big deal. So if you can, exercise daily, but stop exercise four hours before bed. That gives your body time to relax, calm down, and get a little bit cooler. And then step number five, um, which doesn't have to do with how to improve sleep, but is a good idea anyway, is when you wake up in the morning, you should drink 16 ounces of water, not caffeine, water, and before get the coffee. before the coffee and 15 minutes of sunlight. Mm. The sun, when it hits your eyes, turns off the melatonin faucet in your brain. And so that morning foggy, uh, I can't wake up kind of feeling, if you go outside and get some fresh sunlight, and breathe some good, fresh air, gone. You will feel so much better almost instantly. So in summary, step one, stick to one wake-up time. Step two, stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Step three, stop alcohol three hours before bed. Step four, exercise daily, but stop exercise four hours before bed. And step number five is to, when you wake up in the morning, drink 15 ounces of water and get 15 minutes of sunlight. So that sounds easy. quite easy, apart yeah. from the last thing, because you know what? In the There's Nordic, not a lot of sunlight in Sweden sometimes. Exactly. I know. I mean, between October to March, it's uh, yes. completely, I mean, it's blackout, basically. You don't it need is. any curtain or anything. But right. I, actually, a, a doctor told me just this, because mm. I um, took a hormone test and I'm low in melatonin. Even ah, though I, okay. I have, I mean, I, I don't have problems to fall asleep, but I'm quite right. low in melatonin. And then he mm -hmm. said that might be because um, you should be exposed to light the minute you wake up. He's right. But there's a, there's a way we can fix this for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we do is we can buy a light box. 
So these are available on um, uh, Amazon and places like that. And it's called light therapy. So I have one of my closest friends who uh, is from Copenhagen. And he tells me about how, you know, the Danes have something similar because they they don't have, they have a lot of darkness um, during their daytime, not a lot of sunlight and things like that. There are light boxes that you can buy about a hundred dollars and you can use light therapy in the morning. So if you don't have sunlight, you turn on one of these lights. You can even use your overhead lights that you have in your home. It's not as good, but you can buy these special lights and they're actually quite effective. Mm, great. That's yeah. a great tip. <laughs> so that, that's a quite easy tip that why, why don't doctors give that? I mean, I have So it's a good question. It. So this is only something that we have learned within the last seven to 10 years. Um, So most doctors haven't been trained on this. So what we discovered is there's a special cell in your eyeball called a melanopsin cell. And this is the, the cell that is reacting to the wavelength of light called blue light. So you may have seen in the popular press that people say you shouldn't have blue light at night from televisions, from phones. That is uh, my, phones. one of my questions to you. Yes, is I'm sure true? it is. You shouldn't right? have that. Is that true? That is true. You should not mm. have that because that's the light you want in the morning to keep you awake. You don't want it at night because that's what keeps you up. This is why so many of our kids, when they're playing games until midnight, can't sleep. Mm. is because of all of this blue light. But we have a solution. So these are the solution. Oh. And now these are blue light blocking glasses. So for folks who can't see, um, because we're audio only, um, this, these are blue light blocking glasses. So they have an amber colored lens, which blocks that awakening light. So, um, I give these to my children and when they play games at night and they wear them and they don't mind, and then they can fall asleep. So it works out great. So, um, Would you mind to tell us of a typical patient that could come to you? Sure. So I am what's called a high-performance sleep coach. So I'm not like normal sleep doctors here in the United States. Normal sleep doctors here in the United States, they treat sleep apnea. They treat narcolepsy. They treat um, restless legs syndrome. So well-known sleep disorders. I did that for 20 years. What I do is a little bit different. I can do all of that. But what I do is I take executives, um, CEOs, uh, athletes, politicians, um, all of these people who are high performers, and I teach them how to use sleep to make their performance better. Mm. So remember what we were talking about, how I only sleep six hours and 15 minutes because my yeah. sleep is so consistent and I sleep at the right time. Mm. I teach them how to do that. And then all of a sudden... They have to sleep less, which gives them more time in the day to be more productive. So I work with um, some of the most famous athletes in the world. I work with some of the most famous CEOs, politicians, you name it. All people who want to be high achievers and high performers and use sleep as kind of their secret weapon. That's Mm. what I do. Mm. Yes, because you always read about all these uh, successful people and how little they sleep. Right. So I teach them how to do that. So I had a question to you. What's your three top tip to someone having poor sleep? But that I think you answered very well. Already. Yeah, I think we kind of, those five steps usually work very well for people. If they do those five steps, but still have a sleep related issue, they may want to talk with their doctor about it um, because those things should help them generally speaking. 
Mm. So, but how do you measure uh, your the people that come to you? How do you measure ah, how yes. much deep sleep and REM mm-hmm. sleep they have? Great question. So, um, I wear a ring, and this ring helps track my sleep. And so, all of my patients wear these rings, and I can monitor their sleep from my computer. So I have a list of patients and every morning I go in and I see how did you sleep last night? And then I might text you to give you some ideas or some thoughts, or I'm looking for a pattern for some people. Um, And I had one patient who his sleep had changed over the course of the last three weeks. So we started to look and what I discovered was that his heart rate had increased during his sleep about three weeks prior. We couldn't figure out why. So I started asking questions and then he remembered oh, I started taking a new supplement three weeks ago. I bet that's what it is. We removed the supplement, his sleep got better. So it's amazing when you really pay attention and you start tracking people's data, what you can learn. Now, to be fair, you might not have a ring. There are wristbands. There are things that you can put on your body. There are even things that you can lay on the bed Mm. that will help you monitor uh, your sleep quite well. Um, Also, you can just use a piece of paper and a pencil and write it all down if you don't want to get too technical. Now, remember, there is no tracker that is 100% accurate. Mm. They just don't exist, remember? Sleep is a complicated process. It's very different than if you were counting calories or steps, right? Those are known metrics. But if I turn to you and say, how did you sleep last night? What are you going to say? Good, bad, a 63, a 47, 112. You know, there's not a number to give. And so that's what makes it different and difficult when we have these apps because they try to quantify our sleep. And unfortunately, they don't always do the best um, job of it. Sleep medications are quite common mm-hmm. here, at least. Yes, I mean, they but are. do they really work to improve the sleep? So this is the right question to ask. So it depends upon the uh, medication. Um, so pharmaceutical medications, medications that a doctor has to write you a prescription for. Um, in the past, we see that they do make people fall asleep. However, it changes the stages. Right? So remember we were talking about stage three, four and REM sleep. Unfortunately, many of the old medications, they just put you to sleep. They don't help you get into a good quality sleep, right? That's the difference there. Mm. Then we started to get newer medications. Um, those are better, but they don't get rid of it all, but they are better. Um, and they seem to have less of an effect on your sleep. The best are things like magnesium and iron and vitamin D, things our body needs anyway, that's always where I like to start. Mm. Um, Because most people, their diets don't have enough magnesium, Mm. right? They're not outside enough to get enough vitamin D. And both magnesium and vitamin D directly affect the sleep system directly. So I'm always starting there first. Next, we might look at, for example, an herb that might be um, helping reduce anxiety. Now, I don't know in Sweden what's available, but for here, for example, here in the United States, we can use something called magnolia bark. Mm. This is a substance you can take it in a pill and it helps lower anxiety to help you fall asleep. Um, there's something called valerian root. 
Um, it's very stinky, uh, but it's very effective mm-hmm. uh, and it helps people fall asleep. So sometimes we, we walk down that path. Sometimes it's hormones. Mm. So for many of my female patients who are, let's say, going through menstrual cycle, that can change their sleep. Or menopause can change their sleep. Or pregnancy can change their sleep. So women have very different issues that in many cases we don't want to use prescriptions. We want to use more natural substances to help them with their sleep. Um, and then there are uh, the ones that you can get in the, in the store, right? So they're not prescription, but they're not herbal. They're what we call over-the-counter, like Tylenol PM um, and those kind of things. Those can work a little. Unfortunately, if you use them for long periods of time, there is an association with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinsonian mm-hmm. symptoms. So you want to stay away from anything that's a PM um, because that has Benadryl in it, and Benadryl is not really great mm. for sleep. That's quite severe down effects. Yes, that is. I mean, to be fair, not everybody gets Parkinson's and Alzheimer's if you take these medications, but there is a very strong association of people who take them long-term who end up getting that. Mm. Wow. Is it good to nap? My children's <laughs> grandfather, he is taking a nap every day but he has a, such a hard time to sleep in the night <laughs> and i always say to him right don't have this nap so now i wonder is it good to nap in the day and if so how long <laughs> you are correct my friend yeah so people who who have bad sleep at night should never nap no never mm. now if you are older and you only sleep for let's say five hours one night and you want some extra sleep that day, sure, take a nap. But generally speaking, we shouldn't be napping. We should be getting the sleep that we need in the night. Mm. When we nap during the day, we lower our sleep drive to make it more difficult to sleep at night. So usually um, I love naps short, less than 20 minutes to 25 minutes is the maximum nap you would ever want. And I'm going to teach you something that I do every once in a while, and I teach it to all of my patients. Mm. So I have them take a cup of drip black coffee, mm. so caffeine coffee, mm. put in three ice cubes to make it cold, mm. drink it as fast as they can, close their eyes, and take a 25-minute nap. What ends up happening is when they nap, it gets reduces that sleep drive. The caffeine is waiting. You're good for four hours, guaranteed. It works wow. like a charm. I call it the Napa latte. So this could you do when, if you know you need to drive for four hours, yes. for example. Exactly. Oh, exactly. that's really good. It works great. I never nap and I've never liked napping. And that is due to the few times I've done it, I wake up with an anxiety. And I yeah. wonder, why do you get that? Because I almost feel like, I don't know, um, I feel yet lagged and like uh, what yes. is happening yes. and worry. Yeah. So what happens in that case is you've napped too long and then your body wants to stay asleep because it thinks you're, you're at, it's nighttime, mm. right? Because once you go past napping about 25 or 30 minutes, your brain thinks, oh, now is the time to sleep and then tries to keep you to sleep. So when you wake up, you feel like crap. Mm. So it's uh, it's not uncommon that people feel that way. Not uncommon at all. Would you call this a micro sleep? What you talked about now? So no. So a micro sleep is where you're hanging out with people, and then you do one of these where your eyes close for about three or four seconds, then you wake up. 
So micro sleeps, we see this happening when people are driving mm. um, a lot. They're very, very dangerous, mm. right? So this is where somebody's overtired, sleep deprived, and their body forces them into sleep for three or four seconds, and then they wake up. So they're driving and they're driving, and then they do one of these, and they're driving, and they're driving, and they wake up. So micro sleeps are very, very dangerous, very different than a nap. A nap, micro sleep is less than eight seconds, 10 seconds. A nap would be 20 minutes. Okay, so micro sleep, it's more that uh, you fall asleep from exhaustion. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And it's much, much shorter, much, much shorter. Mm. So, how important is a good circadian rhythm for sleep and health? Mm -hmm. So, we've actually been talking about your circadian rhythm almost the entire time we've been doing this interview today. So, remember how we talked about some people are early birds mm -hmm. and some people are night owls? So, those are circadian rhythms. Mm. So it turns out that your there are two systems in the brain for sleep. One is called sleep drive. This is the thing that makes you fall asleep. Mm. The other is called your circadian rhythm. Mm. And this is what tells your body it's time to sleep. So think of it like this. In, when you get hungry, right? Hungry, hungry, hungry. You eat something and that hunger finally slows down, right? But when do you get hungry? Around breakfast time, around lunch time, and around Because dinner time. Because I'm used time. to it. Exactly. Mm. That's your circadian rhythm. Oh. And that's how sleep works. So just like sleep, sleep drive increases throughout the day. And when you sleep, that drive reduces, but you only get sleepy in the evenings, just like you only get hungry at breakfast time, at lunchtime, and at dinner time, because your brain is expecting it. That's a circadian rhythm. Mm. And what would you say, uh, this ring is also measuring like the HRV? Yeah. So heart rate variability. Yeah. And how, how important is that, would you say, for a good night's sleep? So this is new, um, something we've learned fairly recently, but it turns out that yes, heart rate variability is a very important statistic. So when your heart beats, you don't want it to go bing, 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 bing. You want it to go bing, 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 bing. You want it to move around a lot because if it's very steady, it starts to slow down. Mm. And when it starts to slow down, it's not good. Mm. So seeing this variability turns out to be good for your overall health. Now, how does heart rate have to do with sleep? So what we know is during sleep, our heart rate drops pretty dramatically because we're not up and moving around and having to use our muscles and things like that. But we still need to see that level of variability Um, especially in heart rate, because what we know that there's different heart rate in different stages of sleep. So in stages one and two, your heart beats fast. In stage REM, your heart beats very slow. So this variability becomes important because then we know which stages of sleep you've been able to accomplish. So having some level of heart rate variability when it's measured by a ring can actually be very important. Mm. So how does mm -hmm. shift work and jet lag affect our sleep and health? Of course. So here's what's interesting is when we talk about shift work uh, and jet lag uh, in particular, these are big topics. Mm. So what, here's what we know is it's not healthy to work the night shift. It's just not. Your body is not meant to be awake in the middle of the night. We know that people who work the night shift have more mental health issues, so more depression, anxiety, um, eating disorders, you anything that has to do with mental health is worse if you work at night. Physical health, also quite terrible. Um, suicide, 
very high. So again, people should not be working at night, generally speaking. Now, there is an exception to this rule. Um, Night owls, right? So people who love to be up at night anyway, they might actually be a good fit for a, a nighttime position. So I like to stay up until midnight, um, like, like we've talked about here, but I've got patients who like to stay up until one, till two, till three o'clock in the morning. Well, to be honest with you, they'd be perfect on the night shift because that's where their body naturally wants to be. So if you can get somebody naturally who wants to be on that shift, on the shift, they do very well. But if you don't, that's where the problems come in. And the same kind of holds true for jet lag. Um, however, jet lag, my friend I was mentioning to you before from Copenhagen, mm-hmm. he and I have actually developed an app oh. that is very, very successful in teaching people how to get rid of jet lag naturally. So um, what you need is, uh, well, you do need one thing. You need melatonin. Um, so it's napping, melatonin, light, and caffeine are the four things that you do in a particular order. We can get rid of jet lag completely. So for people who are listening, if you go to www dot time shifter t-i-m-e-s-h-i-f-t-e-r dot com and you use the code the sleep doctor you get your first two jet lag plans for free so you can put in where you are where you're going and it'll give you the exact routine that you should do for two days before and i've done this so i did this going to beijing from los angeles to portugal from los angeles and to Australia from Los Angeles. So these are long flights, 18 hour, Mm. 14 hour flights. I walked off the plane and I was ready to give my lecture literally within hours. So this thing works. I'm so happy you told me because, you know, I have, I've actually been traveling quite a lot in my life, but I've always been very affected by jet lag. Uh, so I will be the first one. <laughs> I can't wait for app. you to try it. I mean, now it's Corona times, so um, I, I, I don't know when I will be yet lagged again. But right. but I will definitely go to this. What is sleep apnea? Sure. So sleep apnea is a very dangerous uh, sleep disorder where your throat collapses while you're asleep and you stop breathing at night. Um, this happens very briefly for five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds. Um, And then your brain says, oh no, and it wakes you up. And so you fall asleep, wake up, fall asleep, wake up. In many cases, um, 10, 20, 50, 100 times an hour, this can occur. And you're not aware of it. You have no idea. You are completely unaware of it. So what's interesting is your bed partner usually tells you, they say, oh my gosh, you're snoring. And they give you the elbow and they ask you to roll over or something like that. But what they don't know is that you're actually struggling to breathe. So if you have a bed partner that snores and stops, snores and stops, or you hear them stop breathing and then they they choke and things like that, then they need to see a doctor right away. Mm. Could you die from this? You can, absolutely. So remember, you stop breathing in your sleep. Usually your brain wakes you up to breathe, but let's say that you're, you have compromised lung function. Let's say that you have COPD or sarcoidosis. Let's say that you're a smoker. Um, things like that can all have an effect. And so also it causes your heart rate to elevate. So if you have high blood pressure and you have sleep apnea, it's much worse. Yeah, it's- so all of these things get worse and worse with the, uh, with the misdiagnosis or non-diagnosed sleep apnea. I, I, something tells me that this is more common uh, for old men. Am I right? 
It is. So we see it more in men and we see it more in people who are overweight. So um, we, in women, it seems to be about 8% of the population in the United States. For men, it's anywhere from 12 to 18% oh. of the population. So it's a very Almost big difference. Almost one out of five. Right. Almost one out of five. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's because here in the United States, everybody's so overweight, yeah. right? 75% of people are overweight. 50% of people are obese. Mm -hmm. Like that's insane. It's 50% obese. That's what they're saying now. I'm not sure if that number is 100% accurate, but mm. certainly the overweight is. Why do children never want to go to sleep, even though they seem deadly tired? So this is one of the most common questions that I get, a very popular question. And so parents are always wondering, my child seems exhausted. Um, why don't they just want to lie down and go to sleep? So here's what's interesting is some kids actually do like to go to bed. Um, I have two children. I have an 18-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. And um, my son promptly walks upstairs at 9, 30, 10 o'clock and likes to go to bed. He always has been one of those kids. My daughter, very different. My daughter likes to stay up late and always has since a very young child. So one of the main reasons why children don't want to go to bed is because you kept them up past their bedtime. So what happens is their brain says, I'm awake, more stuff to do, and hormones come up. And then they're ready to go and they could never fall asleep. So there's a window for everyone, especially children. And we see it, it seems to last for somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes at night. And you probably know it if you've got kids. Like mm -hmm. I could tell, like my, my daughter, when she'd get tired, she would kind of do one of these, you know, she'd rub against her eye, you know, yeah. type of thing. Or she'd kind of, uh, you know, or she might get a little cranky. As parents, it's our job to give them that structure and say, mm -hmm. bedtime, wake up time. It's not always fun, right? Sometimes grandma wants to come over maybe a little bit later or a friend wants to come over and see the baby or something like that. It's not a good idea. Generally speaking, we want to keep kids on a very tight schedule to allow for that sleep development. Most people don't know this, but uh, little children do not have the same sleep as an adult does. It's actually very different. So first of all, we're talking about two different four things. So mm. there are four chronotypes, mm. right? Which is your internal biological schedule, early bird in the middle, night yeah. owl, insomnia. And there are four stages of sleep, stage mm. one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and then something called REM sleep. Here's what's fascinating. Itty bitty little babies, they don't have that. They only have two stages of sleep. They have mm. REM and they have non-REM. And that's it. As they grow and they get to be one year old, two years old, then the stages develop because their brain has to develop to that point. So when itty bitty babies are born, they don't even have stages of sleep. They either have REM sleep or non. And then this goes into stages one, two, three, four over the course of time. Make sense? Wow. Yeah, it makes sense. But it, this has to do with the development of the brain. Exactly. And this is one of the reasons why 
parents must be very, very strict. Go to bed at this time, get up at that time. This is important because this allows the brain to develop. When parents don't do this, when parents say, oh, just go to bed whenever you want and wake up whenever you want, that's not going to be good for brain development. So we have to guide our children because they don't know any better. So last time we spoke, we talked about that it's quite important for adults who uh, have a routine. Yeah, to have a routine. Is it as important for children or even more important than you would say? So I would say it's more important for children to have a routine than adults, but adults really need a routine Yeah, uh, because when we fall out of that routine, bad stuff happens. But remember for children, this is the development. This is their physical development, their cognitive development, their emotional development. All of these things play a role. So if we can get good sleep early on, all of those things get better, right? Mm. All of those things work better. Now, as an adult, we have a lot more time on our hands and we have a lot more flexibility in our schedules. Mm. Sometimes that's not good. (laughs) Sometimes we think something's more important than sleep, like maybe being social with our friends or watching television or reading a book or something along those lines. Keeping that structure turns out to be one of the best things that you can do. I tell people all the time, that you get freedom from structure, yeah. right? So you get more of the good things in life, more energy, more vitality, more health. Mm. If, you, if you structure your sleep and you get the right amount of sleep for you, right? Because everybody is different. Children are the same way. When we look at children and we look at how much sleep does a child need, that's going to be different depending upon the age of the child. So small children, infants, if you will, they can sleep 18 to 20 hours a day if that's what they need, which is kind of nice, right? They're so cute. (laughs) You know, you just cold them and they're so cute and all that good stuff, right? But then they get to about two or three, right? And then now they're napping during the day. They might be sleeping for 12, 16, 14, 16 hours, but then maybe they're taking a two and a half, three hour nap. Then when they hit about four or five, they might only be sleeping for 12 hours and their nap might not be three hours. It might be just an hour and a half, right? Then we get into teenage years, right? Teenage years, by the time a child is 10, there's no napping going on anymore. And they're just sleeping in one bout, usually a little bit longer, maybe 12, 13 hours for a teenager, if you can. And then as an adult, it seems to level out somewhere around eight, six to eight hours, somewhere in between there. So what happens is as we get older, the amount of time begins to shrink that our body is sleeping. That's not necessarily a good thing, right? We know that our bodies, the more sleep we get as a young person, the more development we have, the better habits we have. So I'm always talking to parents about get your kids on a regular schedule and get them enough sleep based on their age. Mm. So when you say a teenager should get 12 hours of sleep a night, I guess there are not many teenagers uh, during weekdays who get 12 hours. That is correct. Almost none. And so, for example, what I do with my children is they come home from school and they take a nap. Mm. Right? Because they need that extra. It's not changing their ability to sleep at night. So my son still can fall asleep at 10 o'clock, but he might come home. He might sleep for two hours. Mm. 
in an evening because his body needs it. Especially if you have kids who are very athletic, who are involved in sports, they require sometimes quite a bit of sleep as well. But to be fair, very few children get the amount of sleep that they actually need. Very few, no matter what country you're in. Oh, so, and what consequences could that get? I mean, you, we talked about the brain and everything, but how mm-hmm. severe could they become? Quite severe. So there's a lot of different areas that we can look at it. So number one, lots of parents like to talk about academics, right? How well does somebody do in school? Sleepy kids do not do well in school. Sleepy kids get Bs and Cs. Sleepy kids don't get As, right? because they're too tired to be able to understand and read the details. So that's number one. Sleepy children do not learn well. Number two, sleepy children do not move well. Much greater chance for uh, problems, injury, uh, safety concerns, slow reaction time. You know, if you're playing, let's say you're playing uh, baseball, right? If you're not watching the ball, right in the head, injury type of thing when you're too tired. The third area that we see with a lot of children when they get tired is emotional. They have a tendency to get very high and very low. So lots of anxiety, lots of depression, the more sleep deprived they become. Any emotion seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger, except for happiness. Mm. That seems to get smaller and smaller the more sleep deprived that you are. Mm. So sleep affects every organ system every disease state. So as an example, let's say that you're a young child and you have asthma. Mm. If you're not sleeping well, your asthma is worse, right? Let's say you're a child and you have ADD, right? You have a hard time focusing. Mm. If you're sleep deprived, that's going to be worse. Sleep, lack of sleep makes everything worse and good quality sleep makes everything better. So remember, you know, for parents out there, it's not just about the amount but it's about the quality of the sleep that the child is getting. So a few things you want to think about. If you can, avoid caffeine at all costs for children. There's no value, no nutritional value in caffeine at all, right? It's completely unnecessary and just stimulates them, Yeah. right? Not, not necessary. So if you can, remove caffeine from your child's diet. Sugar is another big thing just to think about. If we look at the surroundings of what's going on with these children in terms of their outside influences, we have to understand that there's a lot of effect of sleep deprivation. the things that we want to have, we can get from sleep, but it has to be good quantity and it has to be good quality. So again, removing sugar, removing caffeine from a child's diet, if you can. Also activity. The best way to improve sleep quality, especially for children is daily activity. Yeah. Right. And, and you don't have, they don't have to be cross country. They don't have to play football or cricket or whatever but they have to be involved in something that's going to cause some cardiovascular movement in their Mm. bodies. Because remember, we sleep to recover. If we have done nothing to recover, our sleep is going to be pretty bad. So just sit at home and play uh, TV games. It's uh, it's not not good good. for sleep. That is not good for sleep. Mm. Exactly. Mm. So Movement is good for sleep. Yeah. 
And then you need to consider as well that children today move uh, often too little mm -hmm. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking about the teenager again. Th does that mean that when you become a teenager, you need to increase your sleep if you're comparing to a 10, 11-year-old? If possible, yes. Mm -hmm. But it almost never happens. So I'm going to teach everybody what I did in my house. Mm. So I asked my children to go to bed around 10. Mm. They would sleep from 10 until about 6.30. Mm. They would come home. They would take a two-hour nap, mm. wake up, dinner, homework, activities, go to sleep. On the weekends, on, only on Saturday, I let them sleep in till noon. On Sunday, they could sleep in until 8 a.m., And that way, Monday, I could get them up early. So you see what I did is I let, them, I let them gather their sleep during the week. I let them extend their sleep only on Saturday. Because if you do it on Sunday, Monday They is terrible. They will not go to bed on Sunday evening. Exactly. Yeah. So I did this schedule for the entire four years of my child's education. And it's actually worked out quite well for them. But remember, all kids are different, right? And so you don't want to put rules on a child that might not work. So for example... Most of my children are night owls. So mm -hmm. them going to bed, so the struggle was getting them to go to bed early, not getting them to sleep late. But you might have a child that likes to go to bed early yeah. and likes to wake up early. And so that's a little bit different. So you just need to work within your child's guidelines. My son likes to go to bed late and likes to wake up early. <laughs> That's oh, so he doesn't get much, he's like this, <laughs> he doesn't get much sleep. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite uh, strict in uh, with his sleeping mm -hmm. uh, habits, but he has such a hard time to fall asleep. Right. What can mm -hmm. you do if your child gets too little sleep, apart from uh, look at the caffeine and uh, mm -hmm. exercising? So the very first thing that I do when children are not getting enough sleep is I talk and educate the child, right? So it's not like you need to do this because I'm a doctor and I tell you so. I ask the child, what do you like to do? Are you a sports kid? Do you like video games? Do you like to read books? Are you creative? Are you an artist? Any activity that the child tells me, I can show them research that sleep makes that activity better. Mm. Any activity there is. So whatever their passion is, I say, look, this is great. I love your art is amazing. You're an incredible sports star. If you want to do these things even better, sleep, mm. right? Let me show you what happens. When you sleep, you're more creative. When you sleep, you have faster reaction time. When you sleep, you can remember things better for tests. Mm. And they say, all I have to do is sleep. I'm like, yeah, all you have to do is sleep, mm. right? Second thing I do is I remove video games from their room. Yeah. I don't have a problem with video games, but they shouldn't be in the bedroom. It's too easy for the child to just grab it, play, not pay attention. And all of a sudden it's two o'clock in the morning and they've been playing games until 2 a.m. Yeah. Right? So I remove the video games out of the room, right? But still let them be. And we create a time, a cutoff time, a mm. curfew. For mm -hmm. video games, right? So I have an adult patient, an adult. He plays video games until 5 a.m. Oh every single day. 
he's a he rock and roll guy at his work <laughs> yeah well he only he's a he's a he's a um a musician yeah and he only goes on stage at 2 a.m okay mm. so he does he's already up right but he's not a good example because i can't get him to slow down that's one of the reasons why we take the video games out of the room and we give a curfew on mm. the video games right mm. the third thing that we do is we look at the wake-up time because the biggest problem for children isn't always going to sleep. It's that they don't want to wake up. Yeah. Right. Cause mm. it's not fun. No. Right. Bah, bah, an alarm is going off. Mom is walking through the door. There's a dog, there's a sister, there's a brother, there's a dad who knows what's going on. Right. Mm. So looking at your morning routine, especially for children can actually work really, really well. So during COVID, one of the things that my son did that I was very surprised about is every morning he still got up at the same time, took a shower, got on his clothes, and then would sit at his desk to begin his schoolwork. He wasn't like, you know, getting out of bed with his hair all crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like hmm. he, had a, he had his morning routine that set him straight that allowed him to do what he needed to do. So my big suggestion is keep a morning routine, just like with the little kids where we have dinner and bath and story time and yeah. bed, we can do the same in the mornings, mm. right? We can do wake up, stretch, right? Mm -hmm. Water, mm. sunshine. Those three things are actually the best things that you can do for a child. So stretch, number water, one, and sunshine. Exactly. So number one, our muscles are a little tight. So we should all teach our children how to stand up and do some simple, just body stretches. It can be almost anything. You can do it with the family. Um, sometimes, I, kind of funny, I get my dog involved sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I'll take him, my dog and I'll hold him out, you know, and we'll stretch and I'll lift him up and down and, you know, just kind of do something different, kind of something fun, right? The second thing that I do is I drink water. Most people don't know this, but sleep is a dehydrative event. You lose from sweat, you lose one liter of water every night. Mm. So three things, stretching, water, sunshine, all children every morning. Okay. That's quite easy. Yeah. Yeah. Very effective. So mm -hmm. could a heavy duvet help children that have a hard time to settle in the night? So this is an interesting question. So right now in the United States, we've seen quite a bit of people with these things called weighted blankets, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the idea of a very heavy duvet, heavier than you would ever imagine. We're talking 12, 18, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. We're talking, let's see, that would be maybe five to 10 kilos. Can you imagine a blanket that's on top of you that's 10 kilos? Mm, it's that's pretty lot. heavy, mm. right? So there's good points and there's bad points. It seems that this works well with children with anxiety. So when we look in the literature, children who have got autism, who are on mm -hmm. the autism spectrum, they've used these blankets with these children to cover them and it calms them down. It lowers their anxiety very, very quickly. So they mm -hmm. took it out of the autistic community and they put it into the children anxious or anxiety community. And what they discovered was that these actually can be helpful, but there's an issue. You don't want it to be too heavy, right? Mm. So generally speaking, you would want a 12 uh, pound or about a five kilo blanket would be the place to start. Number one. Number two, never use it with children under the age of 10 
because it's too heavy and they can get mm-hmm. trapped. Mm-hmm. Also, watch out for your cat or small dogs because yeah. if they crawl under, they can't get out. No, exactly. But I have seen it be effective, but really mostly um, for anxious, high anxious kids. Mm. Do you know what ASMR is? I do, as a matter of fact. You know, I told you my son has a hard time to settle in the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he showed me ASMR and he said, mm-hmm. I love this. So he listens to that or an audiobook. But mm-hmm. do you know what is it with ASMR that gets you? Because I hate it. I think it sounds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, and then I read about it and I uh, heard that so many children find it satisfying. Right. Well, it's so first of all, it's very interesting. I'm going to look something up real quick. Because mm. um, I've got I actually wrote a little bit about ASMR. Mm. So here it is. So when we start to look at ASMR, which is interesting, I'll give you that. Um, so first of all, ASMR stands for autonomous sensory meridian response. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting. Some people are very um, uh, ASMR friendly. So ASMR works very well for them. Some people, they don't get it at all. So your son may be, um, may be more attuned to it than others. So what we see is sort of a pretty powerful calming sensation appears to be triggered from a broad range of sights and sounds. And so one of the most common things that we see in ASMR are these sights and sounds. And these are things that seem to be anxiety reducing um, for for many people. We don't really know 100% why that's the case, Um, but uh, it's it's pretty interesting. There was a study done, and I'm reading here in 2015, by researchers in the UK. And um, what they discovered was that there's a tremendous growing interest from people in ASMR but still no real ideas as to why it works. There's been one peer-reviewed study uh, looking at it, and I'm, what it has discovered is that they know that, it, that it, it happens, but they don't know why. <laughs> mm. Okay, but you, you don't always need to know why if it works. Exactly. If it, it helps, works yeah? and it doesn't hurt you, is, is it okay? And so the mm. question is, is, does it do anything positive for sleep? And the answer is yes, it does appear to do something that is very positive um, for sleep. So I was able to find one research study. Um, And so let me read it off to you. So uh, let's see, 2015 found that uh, most ASMR users um, use ASMR to help them fall asleep. And it's the single most common um, for people to use it right before bed. Um, And about 30% to 40% of people report that it helps them fall asleep and stay asleep. So once again, we're still in the very early stages of understanding what it is. The good news is I don't think it can hurt you. Mm. So uh, when it comes to heavy meals before bedtime, as an Mm. adult, I should avoid it. And um, when my children were young, I thought they slept better when I gave them a heavy meal before bedtime. It Mm -hmm. almost knocked them out. Yes, correct. Uh, So does this differ? Uh, So it depends upon what you feed them. So carbohydrates Mm. make children sleepy. Protein makes children very wakeful. Um, So when you have potatoes, um, cabbage, 
um, things of that nature that are more carbohydrate centric, they increase serotonin in the brain, which is the calming hormone. Mm -hmm. So you ever, what's your favorite thing to eat? That's not good for you. Me. Yeah. You. Uh, ice cream, maybe. <laughs> me too. I'm ice cream. This, I'm ice cream is. I love ice cream. Yeah. Right? So there's. So when we eat ice cream, mm. it's we call it a comfort food, right? It makes us feel good. Mm. The reason is this high level of carbohydrate activates serotonin, and that calms us down and makes us feel good. So any food that we can get that's calming is good for sleep. Here's mm. the problem: lots of these are sugar. Right. Yeah. And so what we have to, we want to avoid the processed sugar and stay more with the natural sugar. So as an example, if you have a full meal, let's say at six 30, but your child isn't going to bed until 10 and they're looking for like a light snack because they want to have something, but you don't want to give them ice cream or something like that. Maybe an apple with some nut butter, like peanut butter or almond yeah. butter would be perfect because we have natural carbohydrates, natural protein, into the system, you want to keep it under about 250 calories, generally mm. speaking. Mm. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been very interesting. Thank you for having me on your show. It was a truly an honor, and I want to wish everybody out there sweet dreams from The Sleep Doctor. Thank you. You have listened to The Food Pharmacy Show with Lina Nattby and Mia Klase, joined by special guest The Sleep Doctor, Michael Bruce. The podcast is edited by me, Sebastian Ring, and I've also composed all the music. For more food pharmacy content, visit foodpharmacyco.com and follow us on Instagram, food underscore pharmacy. 